listen, we all know it's not hard to burn something down or tear something up. That's easy. What's hard is building something or rebuilding and restoring something. And that's the gist of the new season of Reconstructing Faith, a podcast with Trevin Wax from the North American Mission Board. The second season of Reconstructing Faith is a documentary-style look at all kinds of challenges facing the church in this season of rebuilding. Everything from the impact of family breakdown on the church, spiritual burnout, debates over worship styles, the rise of artificial intelligence, confusion over gender and sexuality, the list goes on and on and on. And if you want to be a part of the solution, if you want to roll up your sleeves and work towards a healthier church in the future, then this is a great podcast that you should subscribe to. It's Reconstructing Faith with Trevin Wax, and we're thankful to the North American Mission Board for sponsoring our episode this week. Welcome to the Baptist Review Podcast. I'm your host, David Sons, and this is part two of our five-part interview with SBC President Bart Barber. And in this episode, we want to talk a little bit more about uh, the Baptist Faith and Message, about cooperation throughout our convention, and also a little bit towards the end about the cooperative program. And joining us for this conversation is SBC President Bart Barber. Bart, welcome back. Thank you. And uh, a member of the BFNM, uh, Pastor Jared Cornut. Jared is the pastor at North Shelby Baptist in Birmingham, Alabama. And Jared, we talked about you a little bit in an earlier episode, and now we thought we'd bring you back on to talk a little bit about the BFNM. And uh, also, yeah, I know that you're working really closely with our leadership team at Baptist uh, at the Baptist Review. Honored to be here. Only wish that Lottie Moon was across from us. That is true. We we tried to we tried to maybe set it up at the at the farm. Lottie would love to be here in the presence of the guy in the list. E.Y. Mullins. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lottie. Herschel Hobbs. Yeah, it'd be a great Albert Moeller. <laughs> yeah. Jared Corner. What a list. What a yeah. list. Who would have thought? There'd be yeah, a, there'd be a picture. <laughs> We'd take a picture of that and put it in the archives for sure. Yeah. Uh, uh, would be, bury it away. It would be great. All right, so let's just jump right in and talk a little bit about um, in 2023, obviously in New Orleans, we did as a convention a move to amend uh, the Baptist faith and message. And Jared, uh, you made that motion and uh, it was discussed and debated and ultimately approved at uh, the annual meeting in New Orleans this past year. Uh, Bart, I know we talked about this on a previous uh, uh, on a previous podcast just about the actual amendment itself, the additional language, of, or I guess re-addition of, of language back into that. Uh, but let's talk about a little bit about the process of amending the BFNM. Uh, was it a good thing that we did? And should the process for amending the BFNM be a little bit different? Yes to both questions. Okay. Uh, yes, uh, it was a good thing that we did, I think. Uh, I think it accomplished two things. First of all, uh, it did help us to create some clarity by, it'd be different if we were making a substantive change, but we're just taking language that's been in the Baptist Faith and Message in various versions all along and harmonizing those into the new Baptist Faith and Message. So no harm, no foul. It's also good because one great thing accomplished is that Jared terrified the entire Southern Baptist <laughs> Convention by showing them how easy it is to amend the Baptist Faith and Message. And uh, so now that everyone is good and scared uh, about that, it's time to, to make a change about that, I think, and, and create a more involved process. And Jared, talking just a little bit, I know you've talked about this. You've done a, a first person in Baptist Press and other places have talked about kind of what went into your thought behind it. But, but just give me an idea of kind of what you were hopeful to do accomplish and did it accomplish what you hoped that it would accomplish? It, it accomplished far more uh, than I could have hoped. And so this is not something that I came up with on my own. You know, I worked with Rob Collingsworth on this, who was on the previous episode. And the hope of it was, is that there's a lot of conversations going on in our convention about 
who is a pastor. Obviously, we got different amendments to the Constitution, and we just felt like the article there in the basket of the message could be more clear. It doesn't change anything. We know what a pastor is, but these, these words will help. So the intent was to put it before the convention. The thought was it will go before the EC, and they'll do what they do with it because of the way it was worded, it had to be brought to the floor. And so we had a chance to, I think, do something important. And I believe, like Bart said, it it needs to be changed. It should not be so easy because somebody could come up and change anything in the message of the message. Now, I do believe that Southern Baptists would not change anything, anything right, of sure. doctrinal importance like that when we do something like this. But that was the hope is that let's clarify what we mean. It's very similar just to add these two words in these two places. And I think that we did that, and I think we raised an important awareness to the fact that, guys, anybody could do this from the floor. That's kind of the great thing about our polity, but it's also the, the danger of our polity. You know, I, I know that uh, Article 6, we talked about this in our previous episode, Article 6 is where uh, some of the disagreement and some of the needed, I think, necessary clarity was needed and reinserting pastor, elder, or bishop into that, into the language there. But but there's other places in the BFNM where there is uh, disagreement, where churches within the convention don't agree in practice, uh, one of them being the idea in Article 7 where it talks about communion, uh, you know, should we practice close communion or closed communion? or leave room for churches that practice open communion. In other places, uh, their individual churches vary in their practice. Uh, The Lord's Day, religious liberty. Uh, Bart, as you kind of look at the BFNM and and maybe some of those other areas where we don't agree in practice, how should churches go about interpreting the BFNM in that way and and maybe even enforcing how closely we, you know, uh, how, how we closely identify or cooperate? Well, um, I should probably first say, as president of the SBC, I agree with every word. There Adam's you go. Faith and message. Right. I agree with the punctuation. I agree. Uh, with, I'm Bart it, Barber, and it, I approve this. That's message. exactly that's right. right. Uh, but uh, you know, we um, I, I said in the previous episode that what really governs the convention is the doctrinal belief of the messenger body, okay, which is reflective of the doctrinal belief of the several churches. And um, so there's a strong connection between the Baptist faith and message and that which governs the doctrinal parameters of our convention uh, because one is an expression of the other, uh, but it's a moment-in-time expression of something that moves and changes. Mm. And uh, that's both reason to be alarmed. That's part of the reason that people are alarmed is because they've seen other denominations change in belief in ways that are detrimental to the teachings of Christ and that have eviscerated the evangelistic possibilities of those denominations. And just, uh, we don't, we don't want to be like some of those other families of faith, but there's nothing about being Baptist that immunizes us from the possibility that we would tiptoe our ways bit by bit mm. into rank heresy. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're certainly not where some of these other denominations are, but there's no virtue in just being the last ones to get there. Mm. And mm. So, so I think sometimes people uh, want to codify the Baptist faith and message uh, in order to prevent us from changing what we believe. But the Baptist faith and message doesn't really prevent anybody from changing what they believe. 
Uh, sound teaching prevents people from changing what they believe. Uh, the work of the Holy Spirit to protect the churches changes people, or keeps people from changing what they believe to something that's bad. And so um, there's, there's an undeniable truth that although I agree with every word of the Baptist faith and message, if you add up all the Southern Baptists who disagree with some point or another of the Baptist faith and message, it's a large group of Southern Baptists. Mm-hmm. Now, if you get to any one point, it may not be that many. Right. Uh, there are not many Southern Baptist churches that disagree with Article 6 about the office of pastors being limited to men or qualified by Scripture. Um, there are more who probably disagree with the Lord's Supper, but I talk to people who don't even agree about what that means. Some people mm. say they think it means, you know, the landmark non-church intercommunion kind of thing because uh, it says about the Lord's Supper that it's a symbolic act where, whereby of obedience, whereby members of the church memorialize the death of the Redeemer and anticipate His second coming. Uh, and so some people would look at that and say, well, the Baptist faith and message requires that only members of your church celebrate the Lord's Supper. I think they're misreading that. I, I think when we have the Lord's Supper, members of our church do do those things. It's just that other people who are baptized believers sure. also join in to do those things. And so, But I think you can't escape Article 7 without concluding that open communion is contrary to the Baptist faith and message because the 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 document does say that baptism is prerequisite to observing the Lord's Supper and participating in that. It's clear that in 1963 that was the predominant view and practice of Southern Baptist churches, and it's also clear that there has been movement on that question up to this point. Um, Another place that you could highlight is the article on the Lord's Day. I remember when we changed the article on the Lord's Day when we adopted the 2000 Baptist Faith and Message. There was debate from the floor about that. Adrian Rogers spoke in defense of the changes that were made to the article on the Lord's Day. It's Article 8 of the Baptist Faith. Article 8 of the Baptist Faith and Message. And, um, you know, the very fact that we revised the Baptist Faith and Message necessarily means that people can change their opinion about things that are in the Baptist faith and message. Uh, that's that's why, who, who could change it if anybody who disagreed with it couldn't be a part of the Southern Baptist Convention? So, uh, How do pastors who, so my first church I go to, um, the first time we take communion, I, I fence the table and say it's only for baptized believers. And boy, the emails and questions I got, because I didn't know the church had practiced open communion for years. And I just said, well, look, simply our constitution says we follow the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. This is what the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 says. I'm doing what our governing documents do. Should churches look to make maybe an amendment to their own bylaws or their own constitution about how they do communion? How would you help a pastor think through that? Well, uh, I'll tell you that I think the Baptist faith message is completely right. <laughs> I would, <laughs> I would, I would in- encourage pastors uh, to uh, because I I think I'll tell you how we say it at First Baptist Farmersville. I don't say, well, you need to be a baptized believer in order to participate in the Lord's Supper. I think that's too lax. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't even say, well, you need to be a member of this church to observe the Lord's Supper. I think that's too lax. 
Instead, what I say is, if you have been born again and you are not walking in any stubborn, rebellious, unconfessed sin in your life, you should examine yourself to see whether you are. Then you should participate. You need to be a born-again believer who's walking generally in obedience, including the first step of obedience, which is to follow Christ in baptism. And ultimately, that's the theology behind this. It's not that these things are the only things. If you're a baptized member of First Baptist Farmersville and you're dealing crack on a street corner somewhere, you should not observe the Lord's Supper. Yes, I agree. I agree. At our church. And so, um, so, so anyway, I think it might be helpful rather than just repeating the boilerplate to explain the why of it. Yeah. And it really just comes down to whether your church does believe that being baptized by immersion after you are saved is a matter of required obedience to the Lord. And if you do believe that, it follows pretty logically to come to the conclusion that people need to have done that to be people who are walking in obedience to participate in the Lord's Supper. So are the churches that do not believe that, are they closely identified with the Baptist faith and message? The messenger body gets to decide that case by case. Um, And I think that you're not. Uh, I think you're um, uh, and and here's how to, maybe that's part of the decision. How do you si- decide what, what does it, it means, mean to be closely identified? What, how do you decide what it means to be closely identified with the with the Baptist, with the Baptist faith and message? And you know, for me, I'm I'm looking not just at the Baptist faith and message in its most recent iteration. I'm looking at the history of that confession of faith and the history of other Baptist confessions of faith, and. Um, and, and when you look at that, that puts it in a little different position than some things because there have been open communion Baptists. If you go to the British Isles, there's a much different approach to this than you would find uh, here in the U.S. Uh, but there is, there is a strong, lengthy tradition uh, in most Baptist groups of believing that baptism is that important. Uh, and honestly, I think theologically... Um, you, I think theologically, you if you hold that position about baptism, you can come pretty quickly to that idea of the Lord's Supper. Now, I'm not saying that I think that we ought to go booting out all the churches in the Southern Baptist Convention who do something different in terms of communion. Uh, I don't think that's wise, uh, but I do think, just honestly looking, I think that that is an important and emphasized point of the Baptist faith and message. And I think when that language was incorporated into this statement of faith, uh, everybody who voted on it would say that's a big part of what the Baptist faith and message is trying to say. Bart, just a minute ago, and I, I, this, I know this is going to be a, seems like a simple question, but I, I do think there's been some confusion over it. And, and I, I would love to get your response to it. The idea of the Baptist faith and message and as the reality that it is a confession of faith, right? It is, it is something that we've agreed upon as our confession of faith as Baptists. Um, recently, there's been a little bit of discussion about, are we confessional? Are we creedal? Is it a, it, it, and I know that for some of our listeners, they may be confused about what exactly they may use those terms synonymously. They may, you, you know, there may be some confusion over. So could you just kind of give a, your interpretation of what the difference between a creed and a confession would be? 
I don't know that there is really a good definition. In fact, I reached out to Nathan Finn, who, uh, I mean, I've got a PhD in Baptist history, and he far more than I is an author. And I asked him, how would you say the difference between these could be described? And he said, well, I don't know that you really can. Yeah. Uh, I'll point out a couple of things, though, that I think may be helpful. People who say it's a confession, not a creed, they're not trying to say nothing. Right. I think they're just trying to say it by using a specialized dictionary that nobody really has. Let's move instead to what I think they're they're really trying to say. Uh, one, early on, when we as Baptists talked about having confessions instead of creeds, that was in an environment where creeds were things that established churches used to burn people at the stake. <laughs> okay. And part of what we were saying is, we don't burn people at the stake over our documents. When we produce these confessions of faith, we're not using them as instruments of persecution uh, upon people. Uh, we're not violating anybody's uh, religious liberty, either an individual or a church, by, by, utilize, by preparing these documents and utilizing them. And then I think the other thing that a lot of times, really the tree people are trying to bark up whenever they talk about creed versus confession, is the idea that we have, as a, uh, as a convention of churches, historically been reticent to be heavy-handed with churches over their beliefs. Uh, not that we couldn't do that when we needed to, but we weren't flippant about doing it. Um, and I think there's good biblical warrant for us to show a great deal of deferential respect to church's own decisions, knowing that we will sometimes say, you're just not where we are anymore, mm -hmm. and you're not really a part of this fellowship, that we're careful and slow to do that. And the reason why is not because we don't know what we believe or because we're wimpy, but it's because we pr place a great weight upon the autonomy of those churches and we want to show deference and respect to them. The biblical basis for that, I think, is this. If you look at the letters to the seven churches at the beginning of the Revelation, uh, you'll see Jesus finding grievous fault with a number of churches. And even the church uh, at Ephesus, you know, to look and say, you've left your first love, um, and to threaten the removal of their lampstand, I think it's important to note that it is a threatened future removal of the lampstand, and that in the letters of the seven churches in which the Lord himself, who is the sovereign head of the church and the Lord of the churches, even he, in finding fault with local churches, for most of them said, I just want you to change. Mm. And for one of them, only went as far as to say, someday down the line, there may be a punitive removal of things from you, but even with you, I'm putting this in front of you and asking you to consider it, and I'm and I'm calling upon you to make your own decision to change. And so, I, together with Baptists through the ages, believe that a great deal of deferential respect should be shown to local churches as they make their own decisions about what they believe. And when that time has expired and they've had a chance to consider it and there's been dialogue and everything else, then maybe you come to the point where you have to take decisive action. But we shouldn't be flippant or quick 
about doing that. It's something that we should regard as weighty, and we should be very sober-minded about it. We do that with church discipline, right? We just don't kick members out. We plead and beg for them to change, to repent, and to come back and to be restored. Educate sometimes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't know that this was a problem. So, you know, you try to show why. But, you know, a lot, a lot we just use the word that Baptists hate, which is the word change. And what we hear, I mean, Saddleback said this last year is, you're violating our local autonomy of our church. And so how do, how do we think through that? Does it violate a church's local autonomy for messengers of a convention of other churches to tell them you're not in friendly cooperation with us? Not even a little bit. Uh, we could no more violate a local church's autonomy than we could violate the law of gravity. Uh, it's a it's not your church is not autonomous because the Southern Baptist Convention granted that to you in a way that they could revoke it from you. Your church is autonomous because your church decides whether your church is going to hire whomever, what your church's beliefs are going to be, and no one can make those churches for your autonomous Southern Baptist Church. But it's an it's an exercise of autonomy for one church to look at a thousand churches in the Southern Baptist Convention and say I don't want to be affiliated with you anymore, and I'm going to withdraw from the Southern Baptist Convention. And it's also an exercise of church autonomy when a thousand churches look at one church in the Southern Baptist Convention and say, we don't want to be affiliated with you anymore, and therefore you're no longer in friendly cooperation. So uh, you cannot, part of local church autonomy is you cannot force churches to be in cooperative relationships with other churches. It has to be something that's voluntary on the part of all of the churches that are inside this fellowship. And so uh, not only does it not violate local church autonomy, it would violate local church autonomy to force churches to be in cooperative fellowship with Saddleback against their will. Hey, listeners, today I want to talk to you about something truly special from one of our sponsors, Lifeline Children's Services. Lifeline believes that adoption is a divine calling. It's a way that God provides families for vulnerable children who deserve love and a sense of belonging. You see, Lifeline understands the bigger picture of adoption, that it's a crucial part of God's redemptive purpose. Sadly, with orphan numbers on the rise, there is an urgent need. And so we would ask you today to consider Christ's call to adoption through Lifeline children's services. Why Lifeline? Well, they're relational. They build connections with families, partners, and with local churches. And Lifeline is also gospel-centered. They put the love of Christ at the heart of everything that they do. And Lifeline promises to walk with you before, during, and after the adoption. Lifeline's children's services adoptions program, answering the call to share love, build families, because every child deserves a home. Visit lifelinechild.org slash adoption today to learn more and begin your adoption journey. I want to take a moment to mention one of our sponsors, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in Wake Forest, North Carolina. Southeastern believes that the Great Commission is the church's mission. That's why they are committed to ministry preparation and partnership with the local church. Through more than 40 advanced graduate, undergraduate degrees, Southeastern offers robust biblical theological education that equips students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. For more information about Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, visit sebts.edu. 
Barton, I want to change the direction of the conversation just a little bit to talk about the cooperative program. Uh, obviously, next year in 2025, we're coming up on the centennial celebration for the cooperative program. And I know that uh, a lot already has gone into thinking through uh, ways that we can uh, continue to promote and celebrate the work, uh, the incredible work that's done by Southern Baptists throughout our convention through the, the giving to and, and the work of the cooperative program. So as we kind of look back, we've seen the work that it's done in the first hundred years, and certainly I think every Southern Baptist would pray for and and hope for the survival of the cooperative program for the next hundred years. Is the cooperative program set up uh, to survive for another century, to thrive for another century? Um, that's a great way to start coming back out, off the break. And um, I think that the Southern Baptist Convention survives on the basis of trust mm and inspiration, uh, not like divine inspiration of scripture, that sort of thing, but sure. just in the terms of a, a passion and zeal for a mission that we're trying to accomplish. Mm. And um, I think there are, uh, there are elements in which uh, either of those things is vulnerable. Uh, I certainly think that we've had some things happen uh, over, the, over the past couple of decades that have made it harder for people to trust uh, what's happening in the Southern Baptist Convention. We've had some scandals. Uh, we've had um, we've we've had the departure of leaders. Um, we've uh, had exposés of of things that are happening in in entities in various parts of the of the of the state convention or national convention. Both of those. Uh, participate in the cooperative program. And so uh, I do think that actions that we've taken to try to restore and rebuild some trust are important. Uh, I, I know I know that it is that it is nerdy <laughs> and wonkish that I care as much as I do about Robert's rules of order and about the way that the annual meeting is conducted. But honestly, I think that's one of our lowest hanging fruit ways to build trust in the Southern Baptist Convention. People need to be able to go to that meeting and know for sure that no matter what they've read about what the president's personal beliefs are or heard on a podcast about what the president's personal beliefs are, that there is a fair and equitable and just forum there where their point of view can be heard, may or may not be persuasive, but can be heard. And people will have the opportunity to vote on that, and it's all conducted in good faith. If I can, if I can conduct the meeting in such a way that it just rebuilds a little bit of trust that people have in the system, then man, I think that's an investment worth making. Mm. And um, I think that 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 every officer of the SBC, everybody serving on a committee of the SBC, every entity of the SBC, the trustees of every entity. Uh, alongside whatever their mission statement is for that entity or that group, need to think about the fact that building and maintaining and deepening trust is the necessary job of our day. Yeah. And then the other thing is just to keep people zealous and motivated and interested in the mission that we're pursuing together, which is so important. And um, I, I think that... Um, we're doing some good things to help with that. 
uh, I, I wish every Southern Baptist could attend a sending celebration. Yeah. The International Mission Board. That just brings right up in front of you who we are and what we do. Uh, I, I, I think um, that that I'm going to really uh, score highly with your uh, over 60 crowd listening to your podcast when I say that the death of missions education mm. in Southern Baptist churches uh, is, is going to be marked in history as a, as a profound loss mm. uh, for us in our churches. And I'm not saying that it has to be done the old way that it was done, but, but some effort made to educate people about uh, Southern Baptist missions and ministries, uh, I think, helps to inspire uh, people. And I think those are the things that cause the cooperative program to succeed. When, yeah. you, when you say, people I trust are doing amazing things that advance the cause of the gospel, and I care about that, your church gives to the cooperative program. There's nothing to keep us from having the cooperative program survive another century because there's nothing to prevent us from acting in ways that build trust and zeal for our mission. Trust is difficult. At this past annual meeting, there was a, I guess, a motion that was made that you ruled out of order about people texting to the platform, right? That, that we've kind of gotten to that point in the convention where people think, you know, people are either having their mics turned off or people are texting the platform to get points across. How do we rebuild that trust in our annual meeting? Jared, it would help if you would stop cutting the microphone cables. Uh, <laughs> hey, it was my mic. I couldn't even I had to move to a different one. Well, the fact of the matter is that we're trying to pull off something that nobody else in the world is crazy enough to pull off, uh, <laughs> to have an open democratic meeting with uh -huh. that number of people with microphones that everybody can come to and speak. And um, I can... I just tell you this. My uh, friends of different my pastor friends of different denominations are amazed by that. By the way, they just are like, "Why do you what you do this?" And it's like, I don't "Yeah, this amazing. is this, we're dumb." Yeah, I, I was I, using amazed. I will admit that it's <laughs> crazy, but yeah. say that it's the best kind of crazy. Yeah, I love there it, it is. And yeah. I, I, I'm thankful that we do it. Um, but you know, I think even though we had that microphone problem, and even though we had um, uh, people who were wondering whether. Uh, people were being recognized in the proper order. You know, we've taken, there's small steps that we can take that help people to understand. One of the best things that happened wasn't my idea. Um, Jonathan Howe did this. Uh, when they put the three-minute countdown timer mm -hmm. yeah. on the screen that, that everybody could see out in the messenger body, and then they saw that we abided by that just the way that we said we would, uh, it helped people to understand. Also, I think when they saw a bunch of former presidents of the SBC standing at a mic waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting while other people introduced new motions before it actually got to them, I think that helped people to see that we're honestly just following a computer program that says who pushed the button first. Uh, to recognize people in the annual meeting. so I know when I spoke to my amendment, you know who I am. I was at a mic right in front of you, and you're like, Jared, are you here? Where are you at? I'm waving. You can't even see who really is at on the floor, right? Oh, gosh, no. Yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's a large group of people out there. It's a sea of people. I think you're right on, Bart, in saying that, you know, there's nothing prohibiting us from, or nothing prohibiting from the cooperative, nothing prohibiting the cooperative program from thriving in the next century, surviving for another century. 
granted that there's trust there, that, that there's trust in the way that the, the, the dollars are being distributed. There's trust in the, there's belief in the mission, inspiration in the work that's being done through churches that are being planted, through missionaries that are being sent, through seminaries that are doing just Christian, I mean, biblical, conservative Christian evangelical education. Um, but, but let's just kind of talk just briefly about maybe the mechanism of the cooperative program itself. I know that some uh, churches and state conventions, they've, they've kind of been toying with some of the ways that they give to the CP. Should, should churches and, and state conventions be reevaluating uh, some of the ways that they give to the CP? Is that something that we can look at and address going into the future? Well, budgets are a reflection of people's priorities. Yeah. Uh, when you see a budget, you know what people have said is important. And, um, you know, that's something that not only do I think we have to keep evaluating that, I think we have evaluated it and reevaluated it over and over. Over the course of my lifetime, I've seen state conventions increase the percentage that they're forwarding on to national and international causes. And the reason for that is just because churches uh, assessed what their priorities were as a church, and they tried to encourage state conventions to adopt those same priorities. And um, I think that that's healthy, that that, that that continues on. You could come to a point where you looked and said, our, church, our state is full of healthy churches, and we've got lots of great things going on, while all around the world people are, are operating without the cause of Christ being named among them. They they've not, don't even know who Jesus is. And we want to spend less in our state and spend more internationally to share the gospel. I think you could also come to a point where you looked and said, we've supported international missions for 100 years on the support of a base of churches that is declining. And if we want to be able to continue to support what's happening around the world at the level that we have in the past, we're going to have to do some things to make sure that there's a future for the churches in our state uh, to be able to do that. That's a balance and a dance that I think we're always praying through and looking for God's wisdom uh, in that. As far as any profound structural changes, I'm going to say that uh, I'm not 100% sure what uh, what you're getting at there, except that I've heard people say maybe the local association ought to be a part of uh, this formula. And, you know, honestly, in some places it has been, because in some places local associations are essentially supported by their state convention, and the state convention receives. Uh, they're the they're the rece- they're the receiver and the distributor of uh, cooperative program money, and um, a lot of people I think have talked about ways to tweak this, but uh, nobody's come up with anything that's a real superior alternative yet. Or uh, we would have adopted that. Uh, and the great thing about including the people that we include and and distributing things the way that we have is that the cooperation in the cooperative program is not just that churches decide to cooperate with one another. It also makes all of these entities in the different levels of the Southern Baptist Convention cooperate with each other. Sure, yeah. Because they're all involved in this unified uh, budget. And so they're all separate and autonomous, and there's non-connectionalism, uh, but they have a reason to be friendly with one another uh, and to help one another because... Their cooperation makes the cooperation of the churches work, and and so uh, I hope that we'll be able to retain that. Um, if you can think back in your mind back to February, which probably seems like a lifetime ago for you, at the Empower Conference with the SBTC before I moved back to Alabama, you gave a 
a really great talk. You use Adoniram Judson as an example. I think if you'd have passed the plate at that lunch, we could have funded the cooperative program. But you, you had a quote <laughs> where you said something along the lines of, our cooperation is certainly about more than money, but it's not about less. Can you kind of talk about what you were getting at there? Sure. Uh, our cooperation is about more than money uh, because, uh, well, I'll tell you something I said at another SBTC meeting at our annual meeting back in the fall. Um, uh, they asked me to come to the cooperative program meeting and to say something about the cooperative program. And I walked up and I said, well, you know, what I'm supposed to do is tell you how many missionaries are supported. Uh, the moment after you're elected president of the SBC, they take you into a dark room and strap you to a chair and they tattoo the number of missionaries <laughs> on your right hand so that you'll be able to you quote it, it whenever, you know. But the, but the fact of the matter is one of the great things that the cooperative program does and that the Southern Baptist Convention does is forced me to care about churches other than my own. And that's certainly a biblical New Testament truth, that churches cared about what other churches were doing. And it would be so easy. A lot of churches do it. They just build a kingdom unto themselves, and that's all that they give to. That's all that they care about. Their full breadth of concern for missions are the missionaries they've picked out or the missionaries they've sent or whatever. And uh, I think it's an amazing thing that the cooperative program and the Southern Baptist Convention in the spirit of cooperation has, uh, has forced me to look beyond just the boundaries of First Baptist Farmersville and to, and to care about the health and to care about the, the, um, to care about the, the engagement in our mission of other churches that are around us. That's very biblical. Uh, and I also think that uh, cooperation comes down to not only the fact that we care about other churches, but also the way that we care about other churches. Yeah. Uh, we can care about other churches in a way that is haughty and judgmental. Uh, and a lot of that online. That happens. And, uh, and man, it's easy to fall into that. Um, and, um, and yet, that's not what we read in the New Testament about the way that churches relate to one another. And I think in its best essence, the cooperative program involves our being able to go to a meeting and set, sit across from messengers from churches that are like my church, and even to be to a point where I don't win every vote, to be at a point where we come to a vote and I say, I would have done the other way on that, but, we, but, but, but I was in the minority, and, and the churches went a different direction but still be able to say, but this is my family and, and we're together on more things than we're apart on and the things we're together on are more important than things that, that separate us. And so we're gonna continue in cooperation. Uh, I think it's a, it's a really bad thing where when you come to the moment that you're in the minority end of voting, no matter how important it really is, that you use your cooperative program funding as a weapon to say, gonna well, I'm going to take that away yeah. because I didn't get things exactly my way. Mm. Well, you know, that's a, that's a spirit of non-cooperation. It's a spirit of, of domination, uh, of wanting to be in a place where everybody has to, has to follow your way. How different that is from uh, the spirit shown in the Baptist faith and message, for example, when it talks about soteriology and you see 
Nobody would write a statement of faith that said that about soteriology to describe their own soteriological views. What's going? It's not trying to articulate a viewpoint. It's trying to draw out a territory with explicit vagueness. Why is this Baptist faith and message vague the way it is in the places where it's vague? And the reason it's that way, it's not an accident. It's on purpose. They, they did that because they said, we want to write something that more of us can affirm because we want to cooperate with each other. And so it's, it's about more than money, but you can have all the good feelings that you want to, but if you say, <laughs> yeah. I'm, but I'm not going to give anything to help us, your church is going to send missionaries and I'm not going to support them at all. Uh, you know, that whatever good feelings that you have, you're not really cooperating. So it's not about less than money, but it is certainly about more than money. You know, we all three pastor churches, we would never want a member to strong arm us and say, I'm not going to give unless you do something like this. You kind of just made that point. We don't want to weaponize our money. Is there ever a time though, where we might need to consider something like that in the life of our convention? 100%, sure. I mean, uh, we two things that make the cooperative program our preferred mission strategy at FBC Farmersville are, first of all, that it's, that it's aligned with our beliefs, and secondly, that it's accountable to us. I mean, there are evangelical organizations out there that share the same beliefs, basically. That, that, I mean, Samaritan's Purse, the evangelical group, the firms of gospel, whatever else. But, but if I find out that I've given money to an organization like that and they've done something horrible with it, I have no say in what they're going to do. And so with the cooperative program, I can say, especially if I as president can help build that trust, I can look and say, I get to go to a meeting every year, and I can go to that meeting, and I can raise my concern, and it'll be heard fairly. And so that means that even if something bad happens in the SBC, I can continue cooperating because I have recourse in that. It's, it's critically important. Well, Bart, we appreciate uh, your time in kind of having this conversation that furthers, hopefully furthers our cooperation. And I think you have led as a, a leader uh, a, a among us, as a president who uh, has a high view of cooperation and seeks to uh, help Baptists across the entire spectrum of Baptist uh, life, Southern Baptist life, to cooperate well and to see uh, our cooperative mission go forward, not just uh, this year in your presidency, but uh, in the next century as well. And so we're going to wrap this up up, but uh, remember, we'll be back with episode three. This is a five-part series uh, where we're interviewing SBC President Bart Barber. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Baptist Review Podcast. The Baptist Review is committed to helping facilitate better conversation towards a better convention. For more information about the Baptist Review, you can check out our website, thebaptistreview.com.